Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. It was nearly six years ago that the business world received a huge shock. After completing extensive research on workplaces around the globe, Gallup announced that no matter where they looked, they found an extraordinary number of workers were miserable in their jobs and unmotivated to contribute to their highest capabilities. At best, Gallup told us, companies had no more than 30% of their employees fully committed to doing great work. And making matters worse, researchers found that nearly two in 10 workers were so unhappy in their jobs that they'd effectively become saboteurs, intentionally working to undermine the success of their own boss and organization. Now, all of this grim news had the immediate effect of putting a spotlight on our traditional ways of leading. And under this greater scrutiny, it became obvious that our shared management practices were doing far more harm than good when it came to driving human commitment, loyalty, and performance. And as you'll surely recall, organizations at the time were really quick to take all these findings to heart. Surveys of CEOs taken just a few months later showed that improving employee engagement had become one of their highest priorities. Senior leaders all over the world said, we're pulling out all the stops and we're gonna turn things around. So now, after all of these years of trying, I'll remind you six years later, I hope you're wondering, whatever happened? Did we significantly improve engagement? Are employees happier and more committed? Did organizations keep their word and do all the engagement improvement work to which they committed? Well, with the help of my brilliant guest today, we're going to answer all these questions, and he just might be the most informed person on the planet to guide your next steps. Dr. Jim Harder is the Chief Scientist of Workplace Management and Wellbeing for Gallup's Workplace Management Practice. Nearly three decades ago, he launched Gallup's studies on global and American workplace engagement in addition to the firm's ongoing and well-known study on human well-being. He's written two New York Times bestsellers, first as the co-author of 12, The Elements of Great Managing, and also as the sole author of Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements. And it's his research that forms the basis of the groundbreaking bestseller, First Break All the Rules. Dr. Harder received his doctorate in psychological and cultural studies in quantitative and qualitative methods from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And his list of published publications is so long, you're just going to have to take my word that pretty much everything this man touches is exceedingly impressive. I'm honored to say that I've known Jim for over six years and a little known secret, a few days before Gallup was ready to release its own global workplace study results that included the stunningly low engagement scores I mentioned earlier, he gave me the permission to release and publish them first and include them in an article for Fast Company that I was writing at the time. And ever since, we've collaborated on several more articles on this very same topic. And with that, I say to you, Jim Harder, welcome to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Thanks, Mark. Great to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled you're here. And uh, we just might as well dig in and get to the very big question first. Since 2012, when low engagement was first being called the global crisis, all of us listening here are wondering what's happened. Has engagement substantially improved in America? And we have audience in 75 countries so far. So please keep that in mind as you're answering. Have we done any better anywhere in the world to improve engagement since 2012? Yeah, well, if you look at the data and the trends, we could take our trend in the U.S. all the way back to 2000 and globally back to 2009. And there have been improvements. Now, it's not the kind of improvement that all of us would want to see, but it's in the positive direction. So to give you an example, in the U.S., 
since I'm going to go back to 2010 when it was 28% engaged employees. And we're now halfway through 2018, we're at 34%. So that represents over 7 million people in the U.S. who are, you know, have a different work situation in a positive way than they did in the past. Globally, it's improved from 10% engaged to 15%. And in our latest uh, global report, Singapore was the country that had the most improvement of, of any of the countries. And we kind of looked into that and their government had done some things to encourage workforce development and make that a priority. And so they're up in the 30s where they're down, I think, below the teens hmm. in the past. And so that's substantial growth for an entire country. So I guess my summary would be, well, and globally, I'd also note that global change of about five points represents about 90 million workers. So, again, while the numbers aren't at the level we'd all want them to be at, there have been some improvements, and that's encouraging. So you, just to summarize, feel encouraged by the results? I mean, where would you be on that barometer? I'm only encouraged because of two things. One, there has been growth and it's meaningful growth. It's not, you know, it's not random fluctuations in the in the data. These are large sample sizes. And second, I know that these attitudes that we're measuring around engagement are very difficult to change because they require day-to-day behavior change from managers and employees and leaders. And so um given that they're so difficult to change, I'm overall encouraged that we're seeing some positive growth. But at the same time, that's tempered with I have higher aspirations for us as workplaces around the world. What was Singapore's motivation? So it's not general that a country would commit to making their workplaces better. Any idea what motivated that and what drove it? Because the outcome is fantastic. I think they've got a society that is always, you know, a country that's always worked on being effective in and you've seen some of the results in terms of just the precision of the society, the cleanliness and the the way that they, they run things in general. So they come out pretty high on other things. I think they just put their focus and their energy behind the importance of the workplace. Maybe reporting them in comparison to the rest of the globe with some motivation. I'd like to think so. I think that these numbers reported globally should be motivation to leaders throughout the world because improving engagement has such a big impact on so many different outcomes, including you know how people interpret their lives overall, how that then transfers to other people in their household, and not to mention all the impacts on performance uh, that are so important to businesses and countries around the world. Well, a 34% engagement in America, it's not a, I mean, obviously the, the number of people that that represents is substantial, but in terms of really moving the needle, we're still in the low 30s. So right. let's talk about companies. Let's talk about organizations. Six years, seven years later, did the companies do the things that they said that they were going to do? Have companies made a great commitment to improving engagement and they just haven't seen the payoff? Or did they underwhelm us with their commitment? Well, I would say that some have committed. We've awarded 119 organizations over the last 10 years or so uh, who've gotten to a really high status. So those organizations have improved up to 70% on average engaged employees, which is, and again, this metric that I'm referring to that, that Gallup uses globally is a really high bar metric. It's not just asking people whether they're satisfied or whether they perceive that conditions are favorable. It's really putting a high bar on some work expectations of managers and leaders, you know, around whether people feel they have a chance to develop and whether they have someone at work who cares about them and whether they get recognition when they do good work, whether they know what's expected of them and a list of those types of attitudes and behaviors in organizations. So some have reached a high status. We just awarded 39 of them in Washington last week, in fact. So the tide's been turning a little bit. I would say that a commitment 
can't be shown just by measurement. So a lot of organizations have committed to measuring engagement in one way or another, but too often it's a once a year kind of event and it's a check the box, I think well-intended, but it doesn't, in most cases, the practices around the concepts that they're trying to improve on aren't put in place to create change. These organizations I'm referring to here, the 119 that we've looked at over time, they have put the practices in to create some change. And I think that's why they see the results. They think of it holistically, not just as a check the box kind of event or activity that happens in the organization. One thing I want to call out, as you said, the top number that you're seeing in an organization is 70%. So calling out something that you and I've discussed several times before, which is that that's pretty much the best that you're ever going to get to, right? So companies that are getting scores in the 90s are probably misrepresenting how great things really are. Well, that 70 is the average of that kind of top group. So there are some in that group that are in the 80s. But too often I see organizations report an engagement metric that appears high, even in the 60s, 70s, 80s. But then when you look into the data, they've got almost all the people are responding a four on a one to five point scale. That's not really the kind of commitment you want. That means they're kind of okay with the the way things are going, but they're not that level of involvement, enthusiasm, commitment where they're really going to make a difference in your organization rather than just show up and maybe take the next job offer that comes along. So how you measure it is really important. So that's a good point. But there is range in the top and there are some that are legitimately above 80%. That's fantastic because honestly, the last time we spoke, the numbers weren't that high. So the companies that are really committing to this are getting better and better. So I wonder what you think about in terms of what percentages of organizations are really committed to this. In other words, are they succeeding despite not making a commitment? And have they sort of rationalized that they don't really need to do this in order to perform well? Well, I think that most of these efforts are well-intended. Most people are well aware that having an outstanding workplace culture gets them some benefits, better attraction, better performance. Those, those numbers have been well-publicized and agreed upon by academics as well as you know, business folks who've done the studies. But the issue now is that cultures are more transparent than ever. And so I think more and more organizations are going to realize that they have to have an authentic culture if they want to really make a difference from an employment brand standpoint, an attraction standpoint. The problem comes into play more in terms of, as I was mentioning a little bit ago, how to improve engagement and doing it in a way that improves performance. So leaders don't all think of engagement as holistically connected to their other initiatives, like how they manage performance, how they develop people through their programs, and they don't create alignment in terms of designing an employee experience and, importantly, a manager experience that leads to high levels of change and growth. So I think there's a next step that most organizations still need to take, and that's creating alignment across all the resources in the organization so that everything's kind of pointing in the same direction as opposed to that kind of annual event. So I feel that leadership in general understands the importance, but don't always put the right resources in place to create the kind of change that some organizations are seeing. What would that look like, that alignment you're talking about? Well, it would look like, so if you think about when an employee first comes in contact with your organization through in the attraction phase, that they're seeing what your purpose and your brand is really about. And it's reflected in that attraction phase in the hiring process, they're seeing what your purpose and your brand and your intended culture is apparent there. When they're going through onboarding, 
they can see your purpose as an organization and your brand and they know what you're about. So whether that purpose is customer centricity, whether it is to have a more agile work environment, whatever you define that to be, do they see it in each phase from onboarding and then to throughout their tenure as their performance is being managed and as they're being developed? Do they see how their work is connected to that bigger picture? I think a lot of organizations could get a lot out of just asking people to verbalize how their work connects to the bigger picture of the organization. You can even extend it out to departure. Can they see what the organization is about in the departure phase so that they become brand ambassadors even if they leave, maybe come back someday or say good things about the organization as they leave? So if you think about every element of that life cycle, what a lot of people are thinking of now is the employee experience, which is actually what people go through in those life cycle stages, the journey they take. These engagement elements we're talking about need to be a part of all that. They need to be reflected and not thought of as just an annual survey. That's the difference. And I would say, though, even the best practice organizations have a lot to work on still. There's kind of no end. And I think that's why they're best practice. They think of it as a long-term journey where they're always going to have important things to work on to get to where they need to be. I read a survey recently that a management consulting firm had produced, and they were asking CEOs for their top 10 objectives for 2019. And they said that they found that most companies placed engagement or improving engagement way down on the list, with one in 10 saying it was no longer a priority at all. So I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. you're much closer to this than anybody. Do you believe those numbers? Do you think this is true? That's a good question. We recently did our own review of all the top 10 lists we could find. We looked at every source that's publicly available of these kind of top 10 lists that list off the priorities for the coming year. And the top five across all these different sources, the first one was transforming the employee experience, that employee lifecycle piece I was just talking about. The second was AI, robotics, automation, data analytics. The third was diversity, inclusion, and harassment. The fourth was leadership development and transformation. And the fifth was culture. Now, if you think about each one of those, all of these are related to or a result of getting engagement right, really. Or at least you need to think about the consequences of how they engage people like AI, robotics, automation. That's going to have big implications potentially on engagement, but also how people are engaged should be a function of how that's set up or should be embedded in how that's set up. So embedded in getting all five of those right is really getting engagement elements right. And again, not thinking of engagement as a thing. If it's done right, it's a way of doing business that links everything else you do. So to ask a question, how can you get anything done if people have unclear expectations and don't come to work with some enthusiasm and interest? Probably not going to get any of those five things done effectively, despite your best intentions. I love the list. I just think that's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, those five really do boil down to driving engagement. Although I would say that the AI component sort of seems like an outlier. Mm -hmm. But since you mentioned it, I'm just wondering, what are you seeing in terms of companies' approach to replacing people with automation? And how do you see companies approaching the treatment of workers? So, for example, if a particular job field is going to be either eliminated or deeply impacted by AI, are companies taking responsibility for retraining people, helping finding people new jobs, doing something else within the organization, or is it all, you know, every man to himself? 
I think you're going to see wide variation in how organizations approach that topic. I think right now people are trying to get their arms around how much will automation change the jobs in our organization in the near term. But you're going to see a big divide in organizations and it's going to affect their employment brand in how they approach the issue. So through retraining of workers as automation changes some jobs. The problem right now is that as workers get older, they report less opportunity to develop and learn and grow than the younger workers. So that has to change. Meaning that they're being given less opportunity or that they have the capacity for less growth? They're given less opportunity to develop. I would argue anybody can develop at any age and should continuously develop. You know, Pursuit of a, some kind of a progress, I think, is basic human nature. But what organizations are going to need to do is think about who they retrain and how they retrain them and also be really upfront with employees about what changes are occurring so that they can plan their futures accordingly. But There's a big debate right now, and I don't think there's any kind of conclusive answer on it about whether AI will create more new jobs or have a reduction in jobs. I mean, there's probably going to be a give and take both directions, and there are different sides to that. So I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that right now, and it's going to have to be something that organizations respond to in sequence as it occurs. But the key will be clear communication, transparency, and uh, some intentional retraining of workers whose jobs are being replaced. I mean, this is slightly off topic, but such an important piece of your research. So I'm wondering if if you have any guidance to organizations, you just listed a couple of things, i.e. transparency. But if you were to advise a CEO who's anticipating you know, reduction in force because of AI, and they could see it, they can foresee it coming in a year from now or two years from now, would you say that it's in their best interest and connect this into the engagement piece for them to do more to help people or... Is it okay for organizations? I've had people on the podcast say, you know what, it's really not the organization's responsibility to do anything to help employees. It's sort of an at-will kind of a relationship. So I'm just wondering what you think. Yeah, I've got a pretty strong perspective on that. I think that if an organization is concerned about their employment brand, and I think organizations are increasingly going to be so concerned about their employment brand, then they need to think about the people whose jobs are going to be replaced and do everything they can to help those individuals in one way or another. I think simply letting things fall out as they fall out doesn't show enough concern and will affect the employment brand. Then it'll affect who you can hire in the future. So I, I think it's all contingent on that. So in your grand summary, going back now to engagement, I'm wondering, do you think specifically, are we better off than where we were in 2012? And are we on the right trajectory? We're definitely better off. We're on the right trajectory. I would like it to be a much faster trajectory. I think many people would. Again, we see that in pockets, in organizations that are doing the right things. And so there's certainly best practices that we can leverage, and that's really good. That means we can communicate those best practices more widely and help a lot of organizations more quickly. Well, somebody on Twitter sent me a message one day and said, I don't really think most people even understand what engagement is. In other words, it's so many different components that some people may not have really digested it. Do you believe that that's true? And if you do even think that there's a remote chance of that, how would you summarize what engagement is all about? Well, I'll go with my summary first and then kind of take a step back from there. But if you look at most definitions of engagement, it's about the involvement, enthusiasm, and commitment workers have for their work and workplace. It's not the same thing as 
someone just being generally satisfied with their work. It's a higher level of emotional connection to the work and cognitive involvement in the work. And there are a lot of definitions of engagement out there. When you look at the actual survey questions that make up engagement, we've taken a somewhat unique approach at Gallup in that we have a list of 12 elements that are all actionable and there are activities that are actionable elements that managers can build activities around and change over time. They range from clarity of expectations to opportunities to learn and grow. And there are a lot of measures out there asking people how involved they are, asking people how committed they are directly. We measure it more through the causes. Those causes predict performance outcomes. So getting those elements right is really important. Another way you might think of engagement is it's the nexus between employee attitudes at work and performance. It's the type of employee attitude that then leads to higher performance. And to get that type of attitude, you've got to have the right measurement. You also have to have the right practices around improving it. What percentage do you ascribe to engagement being driven by organization, culture, and an individual's manager or direct supervisor? Well, I think based on everything I've looked at, getting your intended culture right means you've got to get the engagement piece right. So, And that's driven mainly at a local level. Not that there aren't things that can be done from the top of the organization. In fact, there's really important things like setting the, putting the plans in place, putting the right programs in place. But about 70% of the variance in engagement is related back to the manager. That's the engagement of a team. So that's a lot. And that's the, the single most impactful variable that we've found is the manager, the quality of the manager. And most things that get done in organizations flow through managers and how they interpret those initiatives and how they pass them on to their teams. You could take it to the next step and say, well, every manager also has a manager. And so that's really important. You've got to have the managers of the managers with best practices as well. They've got to set clear expectations, coach people, build in accountability. It's performance management at all levels. The manager is the most important element at all levels. Do you recommend that and do you even work with companies that are measuring engagement down to the individual manager level so that they can have optics into where the weak spots are by manager or most companies just doing it by larger groups or aggregating it up to the company level? When I just look at what's happening out there, not as many are getting it down to the local level. The organizations we work with, we basically require, we can't put requirements in in every case, but we highly recommend that measurement happens at a very local level. So we map the data down to that manager-led team level, and that's where you see massive variation. Mm -hmm. And so the best practice in terms of creating change is to get data down to that very local level so that managers can see their own data and know where they're at, have high ownership for it, and then get feedback on what they can do to respond. When companies do that, are they transparent with it? In other words, are they sending out a stack ranking of, you know, percentage engaged by managers so that people can see who's doing the extraordinary and who's got some work to do? That practice varies a bit by organization in terms of their culture and how they handle those kinds of data. But there's certainly nothing wrong with making it all transparent. I think the first key, though, is you've got to be clear on what the expectations of managers are. What are they expected to do? If you put high emphasis on people management, then that needs to be part of their scorecard along with the other metrics that they're responsible for, how productive their team is, whether people stay or leave, customer scores if you're collecting them, profitability, if you are measuring accidents on the job, that'd be another one. So it's right in there with all those metrics and transparent so that people can see where they're at and it's part of the expectation of being a manager. It's one of the best practices we've seen in organizations that create growth. There's kind of four 
areas we've seen. One is the whole initiative is CEO and board supported so that it's part of the organization's strategy. Second, there are clear communication systems throughout the organization so people know what role engagement elements have in the organization and when things are happening and all the logistical kinds of things. And then third, there has to be a real clear alignment with manager development programs so that managers know how they can learn, grow, develop in the context of the elements they're being asked on the engagement feedback they're getting. And then the fourth is, I was just mentioning, is accountability. You've got to be really clear on what managers are expected to do. And most of these organizations have actually changed their definition of what a great manager is supposed to look like over time. It's not just a matter of delegation and accountability. It's also about coaching. It's about giving people ongoing feedback. It's about reprioritizing continuously, not just once a year. And it is also about accountability. It's about holding people accountable for the outcomes in front of them. Can you dig into that a little bit more? We have a very aspirational audience, obviously, and this is fantastic for them to get insight into what you're seeing and what the best practices are. But I'm I'm wondering if you can be a little bit more specific, actually broader and deeper with respect to what you call a great manager. And you've mentioned two things that intrigue me. One is the people management side. What does that mean? And what's the emotional component and why is that important? Yeah. So um, I'll kind of go back to you're asking about engagement as a concept. If you leave it on its own, it's kind of seems like an abstract concept. And I think that's where people kind of get off track. But when you break it down into its sub elements, it makes a lot of sense to most people. Nearly all managers that I've come across are well-intended. I think most haven't yet had what's expected of them changed to align with exceptional people management and haven't been given the right training and tools to develop into that expectation. And so if you think about people management, we found kind of three categories of things they do really well. They really look for continuous role clarity. So what that means and kind of the low-hanging fruit in that category is do they involve people in setting their own goals and in designing what their role is in the organization. So that little bit of involvement means a lot to the employee because it means that they're going to take on some ownership for what you're asking them to do. And in terms of defining their role, and most people, when they have some involvement in defining their role, will do what the organization really needs them to do, plus a lot more. Second, and this is the one that is probably overlooked the most, is ongoing coaching. That managers that think of themselves as a coach who check in with people regularly, all the way from the initial role orientation to a semi-annual review where they can kind of take a step back and slow down. In between those two things is a lot of coaching, checking in, developmental conversations in the moment, redefining priorities continuously as the business changes. Businesses are changing so quickly now that you can't just wait to reprioritize. So that coaching one is really important, and it it really affects how people interpret their pay and all kinds of other things, how they interpret their performance management system. And then the third area that I alluded to a little bit ago is accountability. And that's not just about, you know, delegation and let's check at the end of the year how people did after they're delegated a task. It's involving them in that accountability piece and helping them think when they get to the semi-annual review It's really more about the future than it is about the past because they already kind of know how they've done because there have been those check-ins continuously throughout the year, throughout the weeks. 
But there also have to be clear performance metrics, objective, subjective observations. And so accountability, we did a big study on different ways of measuring performance. And we found that most performance rating scales, we could collapse statistically into three categories. And these are three that apply to pretty much any job. Individual achievement, how well they collaborate with their team. So to get some feedback on that. And then their value to the customer, customer value. Now, for some people, their customer value is internal an internal customer or partner. For others, it's an external customer. But in any event, everybody that has a job with an important purpose has somebody that they're serving. And so to think about how each person is doing in all three of those, and most managers will be sitting there thinking, I could put, you know, some of the people I manage would score really high on individual achievement, not as well on team collaboration, maybe not as well on customer value, and some just the opposite. But to think more holistically about performance in that way, and to think about which people on your team have really reached an exceptional level, like one in a hundred, which ones are outstanding, which are above average, which are you know, in the average range and which are below average. That's kind of an imbalanced scale, but it works really well. But to make it not as much about the scale as it is about the conversation that you have with the individual about those outcomes is important. But I think when managers start thinking of their role in those three categories, they'll be a lot more effective. Continuous role clarity, coaching, and accountability. And what are the emotional elements? Well, the emotional elements are embedded in all of that, and that's how you build relationships. So the reason the manager is so important is that the manager can build individualized relationships with each person and get to know their strengths. And when you get to know their strengths, you can position them effectively through all three of those categories I just mentioned, that you can have better role clarity with them, you can coach them more effectively, and you can build the right kinds of accountability system and feedback for them so they know how they're doing. So emotionally, that kind of comes down to the one-to-one relationship and the trust that you have. The other thing we found is that you can have really candid conversations with people, give them sometimes tough feedback if you first have trust. And the way that you build trust is you get to know them as an individual, and they then know that you're looking out for their best interests. So they're open to those kind of candid conversations. And to be thinking about becoming an expert on their strengths rather than being an expert on their weaknesses. One of the areas that has been a bit problematic is that we all kind of, I shouldn't say we all, but most of us naturally think about weaknesses first because our brains are built to protect, to survive, and to notice what's wrong. And so it's easy to go to weaknesses and say, we need to fix this, we need to fix this, we need to fix this. When if you take a step back, people are going to absorb that weakness correction a lot more if they're in a position where they're using their strengths and where they kind of know who they are as an individual first and are confident in who they are and what they can get done. When we studied highly engaged employees and asked them to relive their uh, previous day and asked them different times of the day what they were doing, how much time they spent doing various things and how they felt, the engaged workers spent four times, four to one ratio of using their strengths in comparison to what they don't do well. Now, all of us have activities in our jobs that we probably don't do really well, but we still have to do. But that ratio is four to one. If you go to the other end of the continuum and look at the workers who are actively disengaged, it was more like a balance of one to one, very close balance of using their strengths, doing what they do best in comparison to what they don't do well. So there's kind of a little lesson in there about managing, that managing is you've got to really hunker down on getting to know the individual, their strengths, get them in position where they can use their strengths more regularly as opposed to just kind of balancing out the strengths with weaknesses. 
one of the things that you mentioned is coaching. And we've talked about this in the past that millennials particularly kind of grew up with coaches. They were involved in a lot of activities and they had people directing them and teaching them. And so, but this is a paradigm shift for some managers, particularly some older managers. And I won't even define that. I'll just say that it's a paradigm shift for many of us to think that I'm not just managing, directing, supervising, but my role is really as a coach. So how do I become a good coach if I've never done that before? Is it just dive in and do your best? Or do you have some advice on how I might be able to make myself feel more secure in my abilities of being a good coach? Well, I think the thing I mentioned just a little bit ago about changing the mindset that everybody needs to be treated the same and that when I say treated, I mean in terms of how they're managed, their performance, how you design their role, and even how you measure some of their performance outcomes the fact is we're not all the same. And so you could have a group of 10 people you manage and every one of them has some different strengths. And the way that you can kind of change your mindset to thinking that everybody needs to reach the same competencies. Some people are going to reach some competencies much more quickly than others. And if we get to know each person as an individual first, we build trust and that really shortens the distance. It moves you from an uphill battle to more of a downhill glide. And I think of a strengths-based approach as a shortcut. And of all the research we've done over the years, the fastest accelerant to engaging a team is to get to know them as individuals, to know their strengths mm-hmm. so that you can position them appropriately. And so um, I think that if I was going to just give you one thing that would really shorten the distance, it would be to change the mindset from everybody needs to become the same person to everybody's different. we got to leverage those differences. And it's not going to be perfect because we're all trying to reach performance outcomes but it's a lot better and a lot more efficient than trying to change someone's personalities, so to speak. There's some sensitivities going on in society right now. So I'm wondering if you could give some guidance on what that means in terms of getting to know your people. What is it that you want people to know about their employees and what are the important questions to be asking so that they can become a better coach? Well, I think you can get to know what they will share with you. You can't force that piece. But I think if you open the door and have conversations about an individual and start off with their engagement, so that then builds some trust, right? If you start off by, one, clarifying the expectations of the role, two, getting them what they need to do the work, three, getting to know their strengths. So you can do that through measurement. We've got a Clifton Strengths tool that people use, about 19 million people have used to identify strengths and create better conversations. That's just creating a conversation about who they are in a work context. I would always start there. Always start with conversations about who they are and where they get the greatest sense of fulfillment in the work they do and the work they've done in the past. Learn what's given them a charge in the past in terms of the work they've done. So if you start off by making it very work-centric, you start building some trust. People know that you care about them. And that opens the door for bigger conversations around that might extend to an individual's well-being. So most companies have all kinds of benefits that they offer. Most employees don't use a great number of them. Even wellness programs, well-intended, most organizations that are over 1,000 employees offer a wellness program. But very few employees, if they even know about it, are utilizing it. Most of that is because they haven't really seen a connection between how that can really be beneficial to their well-being. Managers are in the perfect spot to make that translation for people on almost any initiative, whether it's benefits or even strategic initiative the organization is trying to get done. They're in the best position to filter that and make it meaningful and relevant to the person in their job every day. 
So that's why that role is so important. But it ought to start off with just getting work done and understanding the individual in a work context, and then it can broaden out from there, and it probably will. Where does recognition fit into all this from a coaching standpoint? What are you recommending in terms of how and often and under what circumstances do managers give casual and formal recognition? A really important point. It's really hard to give too much recognition. I've, I'm having trouble finding people who are over-recognized, mm-hmm. but the only people who have gotten too much recognition have probably gotten too much negative recognition. But the starting point for the right recognition, I think, is fairly straightforward in that it's about asking the individual, how do you like to be recognized? And to think about it in terms of performance. So the two kind of characteristics of effective recognition we've seen is it needs to be very frequent because we get a charge from recognition when we get the right type but then we need more later. And so it has to be for good performance also. So very frequent, good performance. When the performance happens, they need it. So let's say someone just gave a presentation or some kind of a performance activity for you to notice it and to give them recognition about what they did well right afterwards is really important. But also to put in the context of how they like to receive recognition. Some people like it in public, some people don't. Most people like personal one-to-one recognition, but again, some people like more public recognition. So to, to individualize it by asking the individual, describe the best recognition you've ever received. Tell me mm. in what ways you like or don't like to be recognized and just open the door that way. I think that's one fairly easy way to do it. I love your point that you know it's almost impossible to overappreciate people. I think I found in my career that many managers felt like there was sort of this conflating recognition with reaching into one's pocket, you know, like it was going to cost me and I can't give them too much. And I've always believed, and you just articulated it, that it really works the other way around. It doesn't last long. And so if you want to sustain performance at a very high level, recognize people, appreciate it. It doesn't cost you anything, right? Yeah, well, physiologically, there's a dopamine surge mm-hmm. in our brain that anytime anything good happens, you know, whether it's winning a game or even, you know, anything positive that happens, you get a, and recognition is included in that category, but the dopamine doesn't keep going. You've got to get another shot. And then people do remember, they remember the recognition, but they'll remember the disrespect much more than they'll remember the, the recognition. So that's how important the positive recognition is. You need a lot more of that than to overcome the negatives that will naturally kind of happen in the world workplace. Yeah, like Covey's emotional bank account. You're exactly right. Jim, I want to transition and ask you, you mentioned at the very beginning about these companies that you recognized. So I'm wondering if there are any companies you'd feel comfortable spotlighting and really tell us about what they did and the benefits that they're deriving. I think that's kind of the message that I want to bring home to people is that there's really great outcomes that come from this when you have a highly engaged team. So you're fresh from this. What can you tell us? Yeah. And so just for reference, anybody that's listening, if you go to our website and look up scallop.com and and look up the Gallup Great Workplace Award winners, they'll all be listed there for you. If you want to see the names of the companies, they range from, I could give you a range of the industries for some company names you might be familiar with, like DTE Energy, it's a big organization, Mars Incorporated International Organization, Nationwide Insurance is in there, Regions Bank, Striker, and another one, USAA, many people are familiar with. But there's a list of 39 there that you can take a look at. The things these organizations had in common in their growth patterns were four that I listed off just a little bit ago. I'll just review them again here real quickly. They all have some element of their CEO and board support that their path on their journey in terms of building a great workplace is part of their strategy. 
it's not a separate kind of HR initiative, even though it's highly HR supported. It's something that the people at the top own. And that's really important just in terms of getting momentum and people knowing, you know, what they're expected of from a people management standpoint. Second, they've got excellent communication systems. They end up with really high response rates on the measurement part of the process, you know, averaging well over 85% response rates. Hmm. And uh, so they've got a lot of involvement among their employees because they communicate what they're doing. Do they reward employees for participating like that? Uh, How do you get such high participation? Generally not. Some will have some type of small reward they give them, but, you know, like raffle. They'll, uh, yeah, something like that. But most of them don't need that. Most of them, you know, the benefit for them is that employees are involved in creating the workplace. You know, they're involved in being a part of it. And if you do it in an authentic way and do it the right way, the reward is really in the involvement. So once managers know it's their expectation, then the communication happens and the response rates happen because people know that someone's going to do something with it. The number one thing that leads to, you know, just if you're going to just point to one element that affects engagement growth. I've listed off several of them here, but the most basic is that people know that something's going to be done with the results. I mean, it seems really basic, but but it's it's really important. If an employee says, I don't think anything is going to be done with the results, then you're likely to see no change. Actually, I think you're bound to see resentment because, right? In other words, it translates yeah. into you're putting us and you, you want us to open our hearts and put, you know, our feelings on paper and tell you how we're thinking about things are going here. And then to see that there's been no improvement and no activity to improve it sort of demonstrates a lack of sincerity in that punching the checklist kind of motivation that you had. I think I would resent that after a while, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. And you see that in some organizations where we go in there the first time and we look at their, what they've done in the past. They've had their surveys been way too long. We're trying to measure everything and they've never really put the right systems in place to create any change. And so it just becomes a annual activity and you see just a flat line of no change and response rates continually decline. So it has to start at the high level of the organization and create it as an expectation. This is an important part of who we are we want to be in the future and it's continuous it's not just something we get to and stop it's a continuous part of who we are and then that communication element is really important in addition to that intention and then the other two things are um, have you described a new practice of management that people should follow so that's reflected in your management development programs and training that you have in place the organizations that grow the fastest, I mentioned earlier, have a strengths-based approach to manager development. And uh, so they think about those managers getting to know their own strengths, leveraging their own strengths, and then also getting to know the strengths of the individuals that they manage, their direct reports. And so that's that really fast accelerator. And it's kind of a big aha for many people when they see it firsthand, not only in themselves, but in in others. So to think about that new practice of management that is geared toward role clarity, coaching, accountability, and it's very strengths-based and that that's part of a manager development process and curriculum over time. And then fourth, there have to be good accountability systems that follow up those good intentions from the top of the organization Mm -hmm. so that how people are actually evaluated. I'm not saying paid, but evaluated. How they're evaluated in terms of their value as a manager, the engagement metric is part of that. So one of the kind of really important keys, I think, to achieving growth is not to think of necessarily as we're trying to improve engagement, we're trying to improve our business. We're trying to improve the lives of the people that work here. And engagement is a, if it's defined in terms of the elements that I was listing off all the way from expectations to learning and development, then it's just part of the journey to get there. It's kind of the fuel that gets you there. It gets you much quicker to whatever culture you're trying to build. But it's not like a separate thing that you're trying to do. It's it's embedded in, in all the other 
all the other initiatives that you have. One quick thing I'd like to get to, you created this well-being study. I'm wondering if there's any grand conclusions from that that apply to workplace management and how we're doing and whether or not we're we're doing good in the world from a well-being standpoint. Yeah, and I should probably, from the previous question, I probably should add that uh, the performance outcomes when that engagement process is right are pretty non-trivial. You're, you're talking about a team at the top quartile of our database with 21% higher profits than a team at the bottom quartile. At a company level, there are multiples of earnings per share growth in comparison to competition. So, And you might think of it as insurance against a bad economy, too. We've seen that in the data, that the effect is actually stronger. It's always strong, but it's even stronger during a down economy because it's like insurance. It keeps the organization charged in the right direction when they face a threat. So uh, there's some pretty important outcomes there. On well-being, yeah, we did a global study several years ago. Our goal was to understand whether there are some elements of well-being that lead to thriving lives throughout the world. So we have this Gallup World Poll where we have a chance to talk to people in all parts of the world, sample of that represents about 95% of the world's population. And what we found is that there were five elements that universally predicted whether the people have thriving lives and really good days. And uh, I'll just list them off for you here. Your purpose, well-being, you might also think of as your career, whether you're working or retired or whatever that might be. But your purpose, you know, why you come to work, why you do what you do is a really important element, very foundational. Your social well-being, very foundational, very important. That's the quality of relationships you have in your life whether they uh, give you positive energy on a daily basis. Financial well-being, which isn't just about the amount of money people make, but it's about how they manage that money so that they don't have a lot of short-term everyday stress from finances and also that they are very confident in where they're headed financially in the longer term. Community well-being, which uh, is uh, at a basic level is about living in a safe area. It's, uh, it's about having some pride in where you live, but at the highest level, it's about involvement in a way that's meaningful to you as an individual. And a lot of organizations have been able to put into place practices where people have opportunities to get involved in community well-being through their work. And then the fifth is physical well-being, which is not just health, not just disease burden, but really how that's managed in a way that gives people energy on a daily basis. So, you know, a lot of people have some form of disease burden, but are you able to manage that in a way that improves your energy on a regular basis? Probably one of the big findings from this research was that people that get the most gain in their well-being don't think about well-being in terms of an individual element, but they think about it more holistically, similar to engagement in that respect. So to give you an example, let's say that somebody wants to improve some aspect of their physical well-being. They're going to be much more likely to sustain what they're trying to put in place. Maybe it's a diet program, maybe it's an exercise program, whatever it might be much more likely to sustain that if their other elements are thriving as well. So if their purpose, well-being, or their career doesn't get in the way of it, so if they manage their career so that it supports them trying to get that done instead of working against it, they have many people like to do those kinds of things with other people. So the social component can be really important. Is it financially viable? Is your community and surroundings set up in a way that supports it? So now the reality is very few people are thriving in I'm talking less than 10% thriving in all five of those. So almost everybody has something to work on. That's another kind of reality to be thinking about that, that we're all kind of heading down this path with something that we want to work on. Our best way to do that is with others and to leverage other elements that might be going right in our life. 
Thank you, Jim. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to hear any of our previous podcasts, but just in case you haven't, we have a segment we call the Heartbeat Round, and we take a break from this deeper conversation and we ask our guests a list of rapid fire questions that help us gain a little greater insight into you as a person. So I'm going to start with questions and hope you'll answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> the one perk you wish every company provided. A great manager for every employee. The percentage of earned vacation time you actually take every year. We have no vacation policy at Gallup, so I can't calculate that. How much do you take? Depends on the year. Probably four weeks, maybe. Good. Newspaper or magazine, you never miss reading. Um, I don't, you know, there's none. I scan Twitter on a variety of news outlets and other outlets, and I dive deep into whatever is most relevant to me. Favorite thing to do on a weekend? Something involving sports with family and friends. Quality you admire most in other people? Self-awareness. The book that changed your life? I can't say there have been any that have changed my life, but a lot of people have. Hmm. One thing every manager should do more of? Listen. Quality that derails the most leadership careers? Um, I would say uh, not bringing teams together. Skill improvement you're working on right now? Always working on brevity. One thing your home state of Nebraska that you wish everyone knew? Very good friendly and hardworking people. Quote the best describes your life philosophy. Whatever you are, be a good one. Abraham Lincoln. He comes up a lot on this podcast. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Truth. Favorite band or singer? Legendary rock band Rush. Wow. The lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life? I think how much impact you can have through other people if you just be yourself. The leader of any era you admire most? Abraham Lincoln. Thank you, Jim. Once again, Abraham Lincoln comes up so much and he happens to be mine. So I love that. Thank you for going through that with me. I've saved one last question for you. And it's really about turning over the floor to you and giving an opportunity to make some parting words to our audience, but in a very focused way, of course. So tied to all of your remarkable and broad experience related to engagement and even to the well-being piece, what final advice do you have for all the managers listening in that might be the best way to close out this show? I think that uh, most managers have really good intentions to create a great employee experience. But to do that, they've really got to have first a great manager experience. So to do that, I think it's really important to learn your strengths, learn what you do best as a manager, and use those strengths to become a better and better manager. Don't try to change your personality, but leverage what God gave you and refine your competencies as a manager based on who you naturally are and you know keep adding skills and knowledge to that. I would argue the role of manager is one of the most important jobs in the world, maybe the most important job given its impact on other people and the cascading impacts uh, you know on others that those people impact. And so uh, you know one kind of final thing I'd say is make sure you have a meaningful conversation with each employee at least once a week. Just make that a goal. What that employee considers a meaningful conversation with them at least once a week. Even people who work remotely, I'll add, right? Absolutely. Touching base with remote workers is even more important because they're naturally going to feel a little bit more isolated. Even the ones you see directly every week. If you made that a goal, I think you'd learn a lot. I honestly don't think that we could have gotten the kind of insight that you've provided from anyone that I can think of. And it's just been an honor to have you on the podcast. And I'm extremely grateful. And on behalf of everyone in our audience, thank you so very much for joining me. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Before we go, I'd like to mention two articles that I wrote tied to Gallup research that might help you further your understanding of how you can drive greater employee engagement. First one is called Millennials Don't Want Fun, They Want You to Lead Better. And the second one is called Employee Engagement Isn't Getting Better and Gallup Shares the Surprising Reasons Why. These were both published on LinkedIn and have been read over a million times. And you can find them on my website, markcrowley.com. And as always, I cannot end without thanking my supporting crew, sound engineer, producer, Eric Oz, website designer, Randy Yont, and a get well soon shout out to my greatest supporter and friend, Ken Boynton. And to all of you, I say thank you for your interest and for sharing our podcast with others. And until next time, I leave you with the reminder that when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now. 